please have your Bible open at the fourth chapter of Galatians as we pick up our series again at verse 21. Having been told that the Old Testament is God gradually and systematically revealing himself for who he is and all that he has done, and that the Old Testament explains and reveals the sinfulness of sin in God's eyes, and that it lays bare God's anger and judgment against sin, and his unfolding plan of salvation, and that all 39 books of the Old Testament are all speaking of and pointing to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When a Christian is told that about the Old Testament, and then has the New Testament placed in their hands, it might not at first seem unreasonable to close the page on the Old Testament, thinking that it isn't really needed anymore. Now that you have the fulfilment of it all, recorded in the 27 books of the New Testament. The only problem with that view is that when you read the New Testament, you discover that Jesus and the apostles are continually opening up the Old Testament and referring to it in order to explain many matters relating to Christ and the Gospel. And why would you not want to glory in the magnificence of God's sovereign grace and power as you see his purposes unfolding through all the long centuries and finding their fulfilment in Christ? And there are, there are also many aspects of God's nature which are spoken of and demonstrated very fully in the Old Testament, in some cases more than they are in the New Testament, so that by the time you get to the New Testament and read it, you already know those things about God and you can see and understand how and why things in the New Testament must be as they are because it's all been written in the Old Testament. Jesus frequently used that phrase, it is written, and he takes his listeners back into the Old Testament to explain things. If you are a Christian, you right now are experiencing much that is the fulfilment of all that God had promised to Old Testament Abraham. The Galatian Christians have been convinced wrongly that it's necessary to embrace all of the requirements of Old Testament law in terms of things like ceremonies and rituals and feasts and festivals and what you may or may not eat compliance with these things, as well as faith in Christ, is necessary for salvation. That's the message 
that they've heard and been convinced of since they first came to faith through the preaching of the gospel from the mouth of Paul. Now, back in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul has already taught them that even Abraham was made right with God, not on the basis of works that he had done or law that he had kept, but rather on the basis of faith and nothing else. Faith and the grace of God was the basis of Abraham being justified and put in right standing before God. And now, in chapter 4, Paul takes the Galatian believers back to Abraham's story again to show them from a different perspective that being a Christian and being a member of the household of God, being a child of God, is all tied up with the promise which God made with Abraham. Jews believed that it was all about being either a Jew or a non-Jew, a Gentile, and that the only thing which decided that was your family tree. If you are a Jew, and you can check that back through your lineage, well, if you are, then you're a descendant of Abraham and you follow the Old Testament law. It was permitted for a Gentile to what we would call today convert to Judaism, but that would require them to embrace everything Jewish. Many Christians in Galatia were now thinking the same way because of these Jewish believers who've come amongst them. And Gentile converts to Christianity, like those in the Galatian churches, were being made to think that they too have to embrace all of this Jewishness in order to be a Christian. Their understanding about Abraham is all wrong, Paul is saying as he's already mentioned in chapter 3. And here is another way in which Jewish people, Jewish Christians, have been misunderstanding the story of Abraham. Now, a little earlier, we read a few extracts from that story in chapters 16, 17 and 21 of Genesis. At the start of the story, Abraham is referred to by his original name, Abram. For ease of reference, I'll just call him Abraham, as God actually renames him in verse 5 of chapter 17. Many Christians today would read that story. Many do read that story. It's a story that's often told in Sunday school classes. They read that story but never recognise or appreciate that there is a relevance and a significance there regarding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 24 of Galatians 4, Paul says that that story is symbolic. It is a picture of important spiritual truths concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look, and with God's help, we'll see what it is 
that Paul is saying and teaching us. Well, first of all, we'll look at verses 21 to 23. And we see there a number of significant things. We see a bondwoman, a slave, and a free woman, the mistress of that slave. And we see flesh, and we see promise. Bondwoman and free woman, flesh and promise. Well, let's unpack this and see what we need to learn. God had made a covenant with Abraham that from his descendants would come a great nation and through that nation, God would bring blessing to the whole world. Speaking, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christian gospel. But Abraham, in Genesis 16, is now 86 years old, and Sarah, his wife, is 76, or thereabouts. There's about 10 years between them. And they still haven't had any children. So Sarah, acknowledging that God has not enabled her to have a child, suggests to Abraham that the best solution is to use one of her own maidservants as a surrogate mother. Abraham agrees. Hagar is chosen and she has a son with Abraham and they call his name Ishmael. But Sarah quickly regrets her decision as great tension surfaces between her and Hagar. Probably not a great surprise that that's happened. Sarah deals with Hagar harshly and Hagar runs away. But God watches over Hagar and is kind and gracious towards her. Then we wind the clock forward 13 years and God repeats his covenant promise with 99-year-old Abraham, but tells him that Ishmael is not the son who will be the descendant through whom that promised blessing would come. No, Sarah, now 13 years older and seemingly even less likely to bear a son at the age of 89 than she was when she was 76, she will bear you a son, Abraham, and you will call his name Isaac. And my covenant, my promise, will be, will be fulfilled through him and through his descendants, not Ishmael. Well, that's, in a brief nutshell, chapters 16 through to 21 of Genesis regarding that story. And in chapter 21, the birth of Isaac is recorded as we read. So Paul says in Galatians chapter four, verse 22, you must remember that Abraham had two sons. And he says 
this is of great significance. Don't only remember that God made a promise to Abraham, but remember that he had two very different sons. Ishmael, the one born to Hagar, he was conceived in the normal way and was the son of a slave. His was what you might call a natural birth, an ordinary birth, in that there was nothing unusual or remarkable about the pregnancy of Hagar. She was of childbearing age. Isaac, however, was conceived against all the odds, humanly speaking, and born to a free woman who'd never been able to have any children and would finally become pregnant just as she is entering her 10th decade. Whilst Ishmael's birth might be described as natural and ordinary, Isaac's birth is supernatural and extraordinary. In verse 23 of Galatians 4, Paul puts it like this. One, Ishmael, was born by a bondwoman, born of a slave, that's Hagar, according to the flesh. The other, Isaac, was born by a free woman, Sarah, through promise. So here we have, you see, bondwoman, free woman, flesh, promise. Great story, you may think. But Paul says it's more than just a riveting story. It is laden with spiritual meaning. It's symbolic, he says in verse 24. But symbolic of what? What is it a picture of? No doubt the Galatians were scratching their heads over that same question. So Paul provides the answer and shows us why even for us as Christian believers, it remains so relevant. So secondly, in verses 24 to 27, Paul shows to us what it all represents. What does this story symbolise? Now, Jews traditionally looked at these two boys born to Abraham to explain the division in the world between Jew and Gentile and the animosity that is seen between Sarah and Hagar and the separation of Isaac and his descendants from Ishmael and his descendants all goes a considerable way to explain why Jews did not think very highly of Gentiles. Uh, we Jews are those who are descendants of Isaac and the Gentiles are those descended from Ishmael. No, says Paul, that's not what it's all about. That's not what this story symbolises, not at all. 
here is one other truth that was a huge thing for a former Pharisee like Paul to have come to understand and accept and believe, let alone to teach it. No, says Paul, these two women and their boys and the descendants that would come from them, they represent two different covenants or agreements which God has in place in the world. Now, if you have your Bible open, first of all, just look at verses 24 and 25 and cast your eyes down through those verses, those two verses, where Paul says he is talking about one of those covenants and look at the words which are all placed together in verses 24 and 25, which are all referring to one covenant. You have Mount Sinai, you have bondage, or you might like to think of that as slavery or captivity. You have Hagar, and you have Jerusalem, which now is, in other words, the, the physical geographical city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel and Judah. What's the significance of Mount Sinai? Well, that's the place where God gave his law to Moses. To be under the law of God is to be in bondage, as Paul has already explained. He says, the scripture confines us all under sin, chapter 3, verse 22. Kept under God by the law, chapter 3, verse 23. We're in bondage under the elements of the world, chapter 4, verse 3. And then... Speaking to the Christians, he's reminding them, you are no longer a slave, but a son, in verse 7 of chapter 4. But you're desiring again to be in bondage, putting yourself under the law, chapter 4, verse 9. So we've got Mount Sinai, where the law is given, those living under the law, and the city of Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judaism. And it represents all of those who are living as slaves to their sin under the law of God. A covenant of works which no man or woman is able to fulfill or complete or endure, and which only serves to confirm you as being the sinner that you are. The first covenant is that covenant given to Moses, a covenant of law-keeping. The covenant by which God's Old Testament people lived. And then in verse 26, Paul refers not to the Gentiles in contrast to that, but to the second covenant as he refers to the Jerusalem above, which is free. The Jerusalem above, which is not a place of slavery, but freedom. On the 6th of July, 1941, in the thick of World War II, 
the BBC were used by the government to engage in broadcasting radio programmes into occupied Europe. And the 6th of July 1941 was the day when that first happened. Some of it was designed to be information that would spur on resistance movements and some of it was just blatant propaganda. But that was the day when, in his clipped tones, the Right Honourable Sir Stafford Cripps, you'd have to have a name like that, wouldn't you? He first muttered those now famous words, London calling Europe. This is London calling. Now, by London was meant the United Kingdom. But as the capital and as the seat of government, the name London was employed. But he wasn't suggesting that it was just the citizens of London that were involved. London was used to represent the entire nation. Now, the name of Jerusalem is used in a similar way here. It's actually representative of an entire kingdom. There is a Jerusalem above. There is a heavenly Jerusalem in stark contrast to the earthly Jerusalem. There is an earthly Jerusalem and an earthly Israel, but there is also a very distinct and separate heavenly Jerusalem and Israel, which is the kingdom of God. And those who belong to that heavenly Jerusalem and Israel are those who are Christ's, chapter 3, verse 29. They are those who are Abraham's true seed and heirs according to promise. So there in the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, and these two boys, Ishmael and Isaac, is pictured, on the one hand, earthly Judaism. The striving under bondage to make yourself right with God by good works and obedience to the law under the old covenant given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And set against that is being set free from all of that in Christ, in the new covenant established in Christ's blood, as Jesus himself stated as he instituted the Lord's Supper. The Jews thought that being descended from Abraham was all that mattered. No, says Paul, you forget something. Abraham had two sons, the son of a slave and the son of the free the son of flesh and the son of promise. Of which of those two sons are you? Yes, you need the faith of Abraham, the belief of Abraham. We've already covered that. But also, of which of his two sons are you? 
the birth of Isaac had required the supernatural intervention of God. He was the child of promise. And you and I, we need to be born again, said Jesus. And that also requires the supernatural intervention of God. And, as we've already seen, requires faith, belief and trust in God, as Abraham believed and trusted in God. And in verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 54. Abraham and Sarah had been given a promise that from them they would have descendants that no one would be able to number. And there they were for so many years without a single child. And even at their death had but two sons, which for Old Testament times was a very small family indeed. And in reality, it was only one of those two sons who was the child of promise. Not exactly the glittering start that you might want to hope for, it would seem. And yet, here we are, more than 3,000 years later, and millions have been brought into that heavenly Jerusalem that Paul is speaking of, that is represented by the child of promise, Isaac. The Apostle John, in the revelation he was given by Christ, he saw a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And Paul quotes from Isaiah, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labour, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. There is going to be this great outpouring of blessing. There are going to be these many people who come to this heavenly kingdom, this Jerusalem above. They will be the children of promise. Verse 28. Are you among them? Are you one of those who have been brought to newness of life, supernatural, new birth, by the power of God's Spirit within you. This picture, Paul says, in this story of Abraham and his two sons, is 
showing us the old covenant represented by Ishmael. People under the burden of trying to keep the law, like slaves trying to keep the law. And then on the other hand, we have Isaac, uh, the one born supernaturally, the child of promise, the one through whom God would bring this great blessing into the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way to understand that story, says Paul. And it's all about the one who is of promise, not about those who are under the law. And so he's using this story to bring this distinction again for these Galatian believers who want to put themselves back under the old covenant when it's the new covenant that matters. These Galatian believers want to put themselves back into earthly Jerusalem. No, it's the heavenly Jerusalem that you need to be concerned with, says Paul. And that heavenly Jerusalem is all wrapped up in Christ and faith in him and trust in him, not in law-keeping. They will be the children of promise, verse 28. Are you? And in asking that question of you, I'm moving into my third and final point, which is children of promise, children of the free, from verse 28 to the end of the section. Have you turned to Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? Have you been supernaturally born again of God's spirit to become a child of promise, a child of God? You see, all of humanity, every man, woman, boy and girl, falls into one of two camps and two only. And it isn't, as the Jews thought, an issue of being Jew or Gentile. No, it's not. Paul says in verse 29, even so it is now, nothing has changed. All are born according to the flesh. But some undergo a supernatural change to be born again according to the Spirit. Those who, re who remain in the flesh have always and will always persecute those who are born of God's Spirit. Ishmael mocked and ridiculed Isaac. This natural, sinful world detests God, detests God's truth, detests God's people. It always has, it always will. And throughout the whole gospel age and in every corner of the globe to a greater or lesser degree, the world will oppose, afflict and persecute the church, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Not a chronological overview of world history, but a vividly illustrated spiritual overview of the world as it wars against the church. Many different types of hardship and affliction being suffered 
by those who remain faithful to Christ. But with those same saints in Christ, sealed and preserved and secure, and final victory at the return of Christ in view. And theirs will be an eternal inheritance as heirs, verse 30. But the son of the bondwoman has no place with the son of the free woman. It was God who confirmed to Abraham that this separation must take place because it's all symbolic, remember. There can be no coexistence. The dividing line is clearly drawn. The sheep will be separated from the goats. The wheat will be separated from the chaff. It's not about being a child of Abraham by birth, but a child of Abraham by faith. And then remember that Abraham's family became divided into two. And those two camps remain to this very day. On the one hand, you have the descendants of Ishmael. What do they represent? Well, they represent everyone who believes that by their good works, through human wisdom, through human endeavour, they can make themselves to be sufficiently acceptable to God. And with our proud, sinful hearts, we all like to think that that's true about me. I can make myself good enough that God would never reject me. He would never turn me away from his heaven. I can do it. That's the line of Ishmael. Others, however, realise that to try and follow that path is completely futile. They don't stand an earthly chance, as we say. None of us do. We have just one hope, which is to be set free. Free from the burden of trying to be good enough free from the burden of trying to keep a law which is impossible for us to keep in our sin and instead to receive by God's grace that which is of promise. All of the law's demands have been met for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our punishment because of our guilt as lawbreakers, has been taken to the cross by Christ on our behalf. The righteousness that comes through perfectly keeping the law has been attained for us. We could never do it, but Christ has through his sinless life. And to enter into these blessings by being supernaturally born again and to receive Christ as Saviour and Lord that we might have conferred upon us the right to become a child of God and an heir with Christ 
forever. This is the choice that the Bible places before you. This is the truth that Paul is urging the Galatians to come back to. Don't go back to that road which is of Ishmael, putting yourself under the law. No, you are of the promise, the child of the free woman, that in Christ you may be set free from sin, from its guilt, from its eternal torment, that you might be a citizen and a member of that heavenly Jerusalem, the household of God, and to be with him in Christ for all eternity. Well, the Lord help us to heed his word and to know today where it is that we stand as we have the word of God open before us.